The Middle East is not only an area of diversity and brisk transformations. It's also a region where cardiovascular diseases are rampant. Traditional risk factors for atherosclerotic disease are more prevalent than most regions around the globe. In the Middle East, you can find that one out of every five will have either diabetes, obesity, hypertension, or smoking. This lipidemia, which is a recognized cause of atherosclerosis, is even more common. That's why I decided to shed some more light on the consensus clinical recommendations for the management of plasma lipid disorders in the Middle East. The latest update that has been published this month in Atherosclerosis Journal. And there's no one better than Dr. Hany Sabur to comment on this indispensable publication. Dr. Sabur is a colleague and friend. He has six American board certifications in internal medicine, cardiology, electrophysiology, advanced heart failure transplant, echocardiography, and nuclear cardiology. He's currently a staff physician in Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. He's also the co-principal investigator in the Gulf Familial Hyperlipidemia Registry, and naturally he's one of the authors of this consensus clinical recommendation. Welcome to CardioBuzz, Dr. Henny. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Hussain. Really, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you on this um, interview. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's my pleasure, Dr. Henny. So let's go directly to, to our questions. The first question, why did you decide to go through the, let's say, the hassle of generating specific recommendations for the Middle East? I mean, why just we adopt, not adopt the European or the American recommendations? What are the differences in epidemiology that you see in maybe in genetics, in diet, in body mass index, in waist circumference? Why? So, um, you know, this is actually one of the most critical reasons for um, the decision really to um, move ahead with this guideline. By the way, what most people um, aren't aware of, this is actually the second edition. We actually had an edition that was published in 2016. Unfortunately, didn't um, wasn't very well publicized and, and because of that wasn't very well adopted. So what we have realized from clinical practice and from of the um, learnings from the um, registries, especially the acute coronary syndrome registries, that the mean age in our region is approaching the uh, mid-40s, which is terrifying considering that the American uh, cardiac um, risk calculator, the ACC pooled risk equation, cannot give you a risk score below the age of 40, which means we're already missing the majority of the population in the period that we can do primary prevention. The second thing is, I think this is very important, whenever you actually apply the Euro score, even with the uh, validation that has been published from Europe and Turkey, you end up with a lower number than actually represents the patient. Because all of these risk scoring systems are heavily weighted by age. So when the patient is young, it almost negates the effect of severe dyslipidemia, of the smoking, of the uh, genetics, of the diet. So I think we sort of came up with some fundamentals because we have seen, for example, in the UAE, a progressive increase in the number of patients dying from cardiovascular disease. It's literally the number one cause of death in younger people. And a progressive increase in all of the risk factors of cardiovascular disease. So for the primary care physician, for the uh, diabetologists, for the internists who practice outside the hospital, 
they're not seeing the massive complications, the cardiac events, the strokes that are coming in our patients. So we basically put our heads together and came up with an idea that in collaboration with the international uh, societies, uh, in this case, the uh, European Atherosclerosis Society, we would come up with a modification of the best practices and add the data that has been generated after five years of registries from the uh, Middle East and the Gulf region. And we great. had the... That's great. So uh, where, where, where did the author choice, how was the author choice made? Are the authors and the data truly representative of the entire Middle East or it's just for the uh, Arabian Persian Gulf region? So um, the author group actually comes from uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, some of our colleagues are highly focused and have been focused on uh, prevention and hyperlipidemia management for a long time. And in fact, the same authors were involved in the familial hyperlipidemia guidelines in the first version of the dyslipidemia guidelines, which was 2016. So it's been a very close working group, but mostly all of us were involved in the familial dyslipidemia um, registry. Now, just for history, the familial dyslipidemia registry um, had two arms, uh, one arm in Saudi Arabia and one arm in UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Oman. So sort of a, a Gulf, um, Gulf plus Saudi Arabia sort of uh, guideline. I also, I also found data from Iran and Turkey and from Egypt. Yeah. So there's, uh, you know, I think that sort of informs the, um, the, the data for the population. Now, one of the reasons we suspect that the cardiovascular disease prevalence is higher is one of the things that extracted from the familial hyperlipidemia uh, registry, which was published a couple of years ago. The um, overall population here in the UAE and the Gulf countries has a um, statistical likelihood of having familial hyperlipidemia of one in every 112 nationals. Huh. That's double what was published in the Netherlands. The Netherlands now actually has an entire population screening program. The Dutch so lipid. one every 112 is almost double. The Dutch lipid um, reference mm. guideline, absolutely. So um, there's a background population genetics, which includes of the four major um, LDL, PCSK9, and ApoB receptor abnormalities. And of course, we also have a tremendous problem, which I think has to be recognized is the epidemic of childhood obesity. So um, we have some unpublished data. We're working on it right now with uh, the International Atherosclerosis Society. Is a 10-year data on childhood obesity and dyslipidemia. There's a cohort of about 20,000 patients from a single center here in the UAE that have been followed longitudinally for almost 10 years with childhood obesity and dyslipidemia. This is a really serious problem because all of these patients have become adults with dyslipidemia plus metabolic syndrome. Great. So basically the epidemiology is different and the patients here are younger. There's a higher prevalence of risk factors. There's higher probable prevalence of familial hypercholesterolemia and, pro and, and consequently the risk is higher. Absolutely. So let's go now to the, 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 the actual recommendation. When do you recommend starting to screen the population with a lipid panel? At what age and how frequent? So um, there's, there's two specific groups that we think are targeted. And also 
By the way, we've had some uh, discussions and input from the Emirates uh, Diabetes and Endocrine Society. They have their own also locally adapted guidelines, which are very interesting and also relating to the age. So in, uh, in family members, patients suspected with familial hyperlipidemia, or patients who are parents of children um, who the patient himself has hyperlipidemia, uh, screening with dyslipidemia can be done even at the age of five years old. I'm not saying that yeah. we're going to start treatment in children, but if my brother has FH, I need to do my LDL test. If, my, if I have FH, then my, me and my kids and my nieces and nephews need to have an LDL test. So that's this group. And this, as I said, this is basically about 1% of the uh, nat UAE national non-expat yeah. population. We'll go to hypercholesterolemia. But what about the general population, someone who's yeah. healthy? So general population, the belief is if, um, if the calculators, the European and outside um, calculators start at 40, we should be a bit 10 years earlier. Because if we move the curve 10 years earlier and we start, for example, screening at the age of 30, not 40, right? Okay. For both diabetes and hyperlipidemia, then we can impact the risk factors before that 10-year curve starts to mature and result in an event. So I think those are the general um, differences. It's X minus 10. I think that's how we came up with this number. And this was a little bit controversial. And there was a little bit of discussion amongst the group. But I think based on what we know of the event rates and the timing of the event rates, we decided to take that number earlier than um, to prevent the events. You have to start preventive therapies, statin therapy, lipid-lowering, lifestyle modification, well before the event happens. That's great. So in someone who's absolutely healthy, we start screening at the age of 30. Yes. Going back to familial hypercholesterolemia, I like the, the table that enlists the genetic mutations of uh, familial hypercholesterolemia in our region. It has data from Saudi, Lebanon, uh, Iran, Oman, and Bahrain. And so in your experience, on what's your call on genetic testing? Is it handy? Is it useful? So I think genetic testing is not essential, right? The fact of the matter is, even within these genotypes, so what we did was we actually took patients with FH and tried to identify mutations using commercial databases, uh, sorry, commercial lab testing. And in fact, in our initial cohort of 26 patients, only one had a positive genetic testing because those genetic tests are based on Caucasian populations and common Caucasian mutations. Okay. Um, in our most recent paper, we've actually described multiple novel mutations never before recorded in patients with severe FH from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, from Oman and Qatar, never before recorded. They would be recorded as non-pathogenic or uncertain mutations. So the purpose of the genetic mutation is not to identify the individual patient. The individual patient in this disease is very easy. The biomarker is LDL. The LDL Please. is high. Yeah. That's it. But genetic testing can inform families at risk, can inform the country. For example, if we know that there's a specific... There, so we found that there's a specific novel mutation that's very common in Mecca area of Saudi Arabia, right? Okay. So that means that if they institute a nationwide screening in childbirth, you know, like they do for sickle cell disease or G6PD and so on, the government can very cheaply subsidize a genetic test at the time of, you know, in 
maybe pediatric age group or childhood age group. So you can start these people on the right track at a very early stage. So but for the individual patient, sorry, go ahead. So it's a tool for the population, not for the individual right. patient, in our region at least. The individuals are very easy to determine. I mean, right. if you see a child with an LDL of 4.1 or a premenopausal woman with an LDL of uh, 3.98, uh, who's thin and doesn't look obese and doesn't have metabolic syndrome, that's FH. If I see a male with an LDL of five or more, even in all of the other guidelines, that is required to think about a high probability of FH. It could be heterozygous, it could be homozygous, and treat in a different pathway, because that's really the other thing. We've sort of taken the familial hyperlipidemia pathway, which is unfamiliar to most doctors, and tried to enhance it because it is that common in our population. But like you said very nicely, it's not driven by genetics. It's driven by purely by the absolute number of the LDL. That's great. So now we'll, uh, we'll delve into the, the, the controversial issues. Now, we said our population is different. So which risk score should we take? The European, the American, our own risk? So this is one of the things that we've come up with as a recommendation. Um, we really do need to develop our own um, corrected risk, or risk model. classified risk model. The risk model cannot be highly dependent on age. I mean, you know, you're, you're very familiar with the fact that the GRACE risk score fails to classify patients in the UAE. Patients come to you with a acute coronary syndrome, chest pain, at the age of 32, technically speaking, they are low risk when in fact they're obviously having a high risk MI. So these are not validated in the population. So one of the things we're saying is we should get this historical epidemiological data and try to validate. Now, one of our colleagues, Dr. Wal Hamid, has actually done a very interesting study from a um, cohort of patients that were admitted with ACS, coronary artery disease, in the UAE, and they utilized every single one of the risk scores. And with the help of one of the uh, physicians, uh, uh, in the university, they found that five risk scoring systems only gave a 54% correlation. That's mean tossing a coin, whether you use the WHO score, which is um, Middle East validated supposedly, Framingham, ACC pooled risk equation, or European, none of them accurately predicted risk in either direction. So, so that makes, that's that makes, one of the recommendations. That makes life even harder for someone sitting in his office, right. like a GP mm. and a 35-year-old gentleman walks in and he's asking, what's my risk? So what, what, can, exactly. we tell, what can we tell you? So the suggestion, actually, so the suggestion was we are going, we're have, waiting heavily on risk enhancers. So risk enhancers have taken a high level of importance in both the European and the American guidelines. So the specific risk enhancers we talked about is South Asian ethnicity. So to remember, especially in the UAE and the Gulf countries, there's a lot of intermarriage and familial relationships with South Asians, and there is a lot of similar ethnicity, okay? And we have a lot of people from South Asia who will actually live here. Yes. So that's very important. That is actually one of the most common risk enhancers. Number two, the presence of metabolic syndrome itself. So to clarify the definition of metabolic syndrome, it involves waist circumference, abdominal obesity, the uh, metabolic dyslipidemia, which is low HDL, high triglycerides, and high non-HDL, um, hypertension, maybe impaired glucose tolerance without specifically having diabetes. So a pre-diabetic patient with metabolic syndrome 
would clearly qualify as a high-risk patient, right? Great. So the message very high LDL level. I'm the sorry. Message here, the message here to the colleagues is count on risk enhancers, and there's a very nice table in the guideline that enlists all the possible risk enhancers. Great. The other controversial issue is you decided to place another category of risk, which is extreme risk. So we now have low risk, moderate, high, very high, and extreme. What's the point of creating an extreme stratum? So this is actually not the invention of the authors. The American Academy of Clinical Endocrinology actually coined this term in their 2017 guidelines right after the PCSK9 outcome studies were published. Because it's clear that if you have a diabetic patient or an FH patient who's already had a cardiovascular event, right? Okay. Or an FH patient or a patient with ASCVD and diabetes who has CKD or polyvascular, multivascular disease, coronary peripheral, carotid and coronary, these patients, the event rates are approaching now 45 to 50% in five years, okay? That's and crazy. fatal and non-fatal. So it's ridiculous, right? The numbers are extremely high. And if you accumulate all of the lethal, very high-risk patients together, we call them extreme high-risk. And here, the ESC has taken a very wise approach, the European guidelines, to say that, well, this patient probably benefits from an even lower LDL less than of 1.0, 1. 1. Yeah. of less than 1. So... Um, we sort of put this all together because unfortunately, when you come to the cardiology clinics in our region, or if you look at the Gulf Coast registries or the Gulf 3P or the race registries, all of the ACS registries contain patients looking exactly like this. So multiple coronary artery events, diffuse coronary artery disease, diabetes, plus multiple risk factors or CKD. So these people need different kinds of treatment. They need aggressive dual and triple combination therapy within a very short period of time because here the event rates are measured in months. And these patients can have recurrent events within 15, 15% uh, and have event rates within even the first 90 days to 180 days. So okay. we decided for the clinician, you have to see this patient, focus heavily on their treatment, give them PCSK9 plus statin plus ezetimibe from day one, and at the same time, follow them very closely for the other parallel uh, risk factors. So mm. that was yeah. um, an Fair innovation enough. Yeah, fair enough. So now, now that so I, I encourage uh, our uh, listeners to look at the the table of risk stratification and understand which patients are extreme risk. Now, after we assess the risk, we look at the targets. And another issue that's worth mentioning that you decided to add non-HDL and APOB as primary targets, head to head with LDL. Traditionally, we, we lower the LDL first, and then we look and start chasing other targets. But now you put non-HDL and APOB as primary targets. So this is, um, so yes, this is not uh, a very traditional approach, but as, as all of the, I mean, as we accumulated the data and we sat and reviewed this multiple times, we realized that we're dealing with very high-risk populations. So we have to be very aggressive and very ambitious in what we are trying to achieve, right? Because if we don't do it when the patient comes to the clinic in the first instance, it's very unlikely that it's going to happen on the second visit or the third visit. So we want to change the practice a little bit. Non-HDLC has two different advantages. 
it is in a, in essence even more predictive of cardiovascular risk than LDL because it includes all of the atherogenic proteins, all of the B100 containing proteins that are exactly. very very atherogenic, including VLDL and triglyceride and and, and, and IDL remnants. They are inside that measurement. Non-HDLC does not require fasting. Non-HDLC is not more expensive, and in fact, is part of all of the routine blood tests. Many of the hospitals and clinics here do not do direct LDL, right? So yeah. if the patient is not fasting or the triglyceride is high, you can't calculate their LDL, right? So we decided to make this an empiric choice, whereby, and the data is very clear. If you take non-HDLC or LDL, the classification of risk is actually hand in hand. If yeah. anything, it's a little bit higher with non-HDLC. So as a very practical point, because you don't want the patient to come back for another visit to review the lab test, oh, they're not fasting. Okay, here, do this. The other thing is the proliferation of point-of-care lipid testing. Point-of-care lipid testing actually is validated for non-HDLC and total cholesterol. In other words, it does not calculate the LDL. So if you're going to do a, a point-of-care lipid test, which is very efficient, in your clinic, you can be very comfortable that if you're counseling the patient based on non-HDLC targets, you know that you're going to achieve your clinical goals, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a seven-minute test. It costs almost the same as the lab value, and it has the same validation. The second thing is ApoB. Now, because of the extensive amount of diabetic patients in our region, especially, so they have the specific kind of dyslipidemia, the atherogenic dyslipidemia, high triglyceride and uh, low HDL, and sometimes the LDL doesn't quite reflect the reality of the problem. So if you permit me, you can have two patients with an LDL of 90, but one of them has a very high ApoB and the one, other one has a good ApoB, the risk is much higher if you have all three abnormalities, right? So those patients need intensification of the non-LDL targeting therapies. For example, icosapent ethyl, for example, C-reactive protein. So I think those are the things we're being, yes, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. This is a very ambitious, very aggressive, probably even more um, aggressive than the ESC guideline, right? I, I, you know, yes. I, I know the ESC guideline has been criticized by the Americans as being aggressive, but we're in a situation that if our 40-year-olds are having heart attacks and those same 40-year-olds develop LV dysfunction, the 50-year-old is going to be having an LVAD or a transplant. Right? Exactly. And when a third of our population has diabetes, which is automatically a high-risk group, and then they have diabetes with multiple risk factors with dyslipidemia, so they're very high risk, then 30% of our population within 10 years is going to have a heart attack, a stroke, or be on dialysis. And that's really not something we can live with. Very good. So I encourage our listeners again to go and look into the targets of LDL, non-HDL, and ApoB, and remember them by heart. Now, an easy part, which is the choice of therapy. It's similar to the international recommendations. Statins to the maximum tolerated dose, then add zetimibe or PCSK9 inhibitor if the target is not achieved. And honestly, I really wish that there was a printed algorithm that guides the clinician easier. Maybe we'll do it next time. Uh, so, but, uh, and I also uh, I like the algorithm for managing statin intolerance, which is something that we see very frequently in our patients. So anything new about fibrates, triglycerides, omega-3 fatty acids? Well, you, you know, people just love it here, but the evidence is not as encouraging. So, um, so this is a very relevant point here because you will encounter a lot of diabetics. You know, 
in our guideline, and we've abstracted this again very liberally from the European guideline, a diabetic patient is high risk, period. That's it. If they're diabetic, their LDL target has to be less than 1.8. Now, very few diabetics have diabetes only, right? We don't have people jogging on the Corniche every day. There's a lot of smoking. There's a lot of obesity. So that means that you have diabetics with additional risk factor, obesity, hypertension, nephropathy, retinopathy, any complication of diabetes, any additional risk factors means they are very high risk. So recognizing that that particular type of dyslipidemia is a little bit different, right? Because of the insulin resistance, they generally also have high triglycerides. So all of the historical studies on triglyceride lowering, Accord, Field, were, should I say, not properly designed. So reducing triglycerides without having LDL lowering does not give you the outcome. On the other hand, those patients who had high triglycerides and high LDL and metabolic syndrome were the ones in those two outcome studies that had a benefit. So we have to remember the type of patient in whom triglyceride lowering is efficient. The icosapent ethyl data, I think, is uh, quite robust, although there's been some um, challenges to it from Steve Nissen in particular. I think if you have a patient whose biomarker is an elevated triglycerides. I think it's clear that the biomarker, LDL is a biomarker of atherosclerotic events. Triglyceride is probably an, a biomarker of atherosclerotic events that are inflammatory in nature and maybe arrhythmic in nature. It's possible. So once you have completely eliminated your LDL risk, what is left over? Well, for example, in the TNT study, there was still about a 10% event rate. Why is that? The LDL was significantly reduced. So we said, let's lower the LDL some more. So we did. We Using, uh, for example, um, monoclonal antibodies or enclizran, we can br- literally bring the LDL to almost... Close to zero. Above zero, right? <laughs> Close to but zero. But still patients have events. So there are non-lipid-related, um, non-LDL, I should say, related abnormalities. And this is where I think the uh, REDUCE-IT study and its um, uh, sub-analyses and the other studies like Evaporate showed us that using membrane-active omega-3 fatty acids and omega-3 in general at high doses with specific purification, this is the FDA-approved stuff, can lower the additional residual risk by 22%. Now, I know there's been a lot of editorials about the control arm and the mineral oil, but regardless, if a clinical study shows evidence and it's randomized, it's impossible for the clinicians to have bias, Great. then I think it's a very reasonable addition. But the selection of the patient should be driven by uh, my LDL is less than 70 or less than 55, but my triglycerides are still above 150. There's another additional 22% that could be due to plaque stabilization or membrane stabilization. So the there's other here, things that are coming up. The indication here would be someone whose LDL is on target, at target, but his triglycerides are still elevated. Yeah. And they don't have to be much elevated. I mean, I think the key point is you don't have to have a triglyceride of 500. That's different. That's pancreatitis. That's another story. Even above 150, it seems that the effect is highly efficient, even if the triglyceride is above 150. And that's why the FDA label shows that you don't have to have tremendous hypertriglyceridemia for this to work. And in fact, this is maybe where the ApoB and the non-HDLC is giving us that extra difference. That difference is reflecting in mortality and morbidity events that are not reduced by LDL lower. 
Great. My, my last question, and this has been very elaborate, Dr. Hany, so about lipoprotein A, and it seems to be the next target for therapy. How do you see its future, especially that now the monoclonal antibody PCSK9 inhibitors and the small interfering RNAs are acting on that? What's the future of this molecule? So lipoprotein A is something old, something new. So we used to talk about lipoprotein in A in the 1980s, right? Exactly. In, in the 90s. I, I remember in the 90s. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, nicotinic acid, niacin, was the main reason we talked about it. And there was a very clear link between lipoprotein A and multiples of cardiovascular risk because it seems that lipoprotein A has a very odd binomial distribution. Some people don't have it, and some people have a huge amount of it. And it's about 20% of the population, for example, from the Copenhagen heart studies and the German heart studies and so on. So we actually have looked at this, um, not in a systematic manner, but within our uh, FH registries, also within our FH practice, and also in the Gulf Coast registry in patients with premature ASCVD. So patients with lipoprotein A, the number is typically well over 200. The normal value should be actually less than 35. So it's seven times higher than normal. Now, the other thing that's really important is that statins increase the lipoprotein A. They don't decrease it, okay? And um, nicotinic acid or niacin has now been removed from the guidelines because of the AIM-HIGH study. It actually increased mortality. So now... We have two therapies, two sets of therapies that can actually lower the lipoprotein A. PCSK9 in general can lower the lipoprotein A by about 26%, and we have seen this in clinical practice. So this may be part of the fact that they are boosting the effect of the lipid lowering, but there's something really exciting. From the same research group, um, uh, Samika's group in San Diego, um, and the same company that makes Inclizarat, as well as some of the uh, monoclonal antibodies targeting lipoprotein A production. And I happen to know that there's a uh, phase three study that's currently ongoing for a uh, medication called Pelicarsen that is a specific inhibitor of lipoprotein A with an almost 50 to 60% reduction. So you can envisage we should start looking for a lipoprotein A now, especially in our very high-risk patients, our young atherosclerotic patients, diffuse atherosclerotic FH patients. Now, if it's not elevated, you don't need to check it. It's in the guidelines. If you don't have high lipoprotein A, it's not going to suddenly increase. You either genetically produce it or you don't. And if you have a family member who has high lipoprotein A, this is part of our counseling for our FH patients. If your son or daughter has an LDL profile, please have them do a lipoprotein A. And you start looking at these patients in a slightly different way, and this is, for me, one of the risk enhancers that tells me I need to use a PCSK9 inhibitor early. There and as go. soon as the lipoprotein A targeting therapy comes out, then we need to start using it. So I think maybe, utilizing maybe, LPA becomes very um, important. Maybe in the common guidelines, we put it as a, a primary target as well. <laughs> Who knows? I encourage also our listeners to go to the, to read the, the article. that has very nice sections on pregnancy diabetes, chronic kidney disease, rheumatoid, and even HIV. And because of time limitations, we will not be able to cover them all here. So please go and download the article and go through it. And I'll put the link to the full text in the description. 
So again, thank you so much, Dr. Hennit. It was a wonderful uh, interview. I personally enjoyed it and learned a lot, and I guess our listeners also would enjoy it. And I would definitely, I would definitely like to host you again in my cardio bus. It's, it's my pleasure, and always your insightful and thoughtful questions and your detailed reading of uh, the literature helps us come up with, uh, you know, educational and teaching points for our colleagues and for our patients. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Henny. Thank you all for listening. If you like the content, please follow the show. It's available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and tune in. And so stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.